0: Well, I, um, I had a hard time writing last Sunday's message. Um, I had a hard time preaching last Sunday's message, and I had an even harder time getting over last Sunday's message. To be honest, I continue to have moments of sorrow as I think about the truths I had to share. Thankfully, today we can turn the corner. <laughs> today we'll be talking about a better hope. Very few people know the title of the first Star Wars movie, and by first I mean the one that came out when I was seven years old. Technically, Episode Four. Most people think it was just called Star Wars, but that is not entirely correct. Everyone knows the title of the first. uh, uh, Everyone knows this title of the second one, right? Empire Strikes Back, and the third one, Return of the Jedi. But only the biggest geeks in the universe know the title of the first one. Is anybody here that nerdy? Say it. Wow, we got a lot of nerds in this church. I guess uh, the whole thing about the pastor kind of attracting people like him must happen. I don't know what that is. A new hope. And what was this new hope? I should say who? Who? was this new hope. The new hope was Luke Skywalker. It takes a while to see it, but as the storyline develops, the truth becomes obvious that Skywalker is the only hope for the salvation of the galaxy. Have you ever noticed that most of the great fictional stories employ a Messiah figure of some kind? And generally, the more dire the circumstances and the more successful the Messiah figure is in alleviating those circumstances, the better the story. See, the best stories are stories of hope. Usually someone saves the world, or at least part of the world, right? In fact, a large portion of the best literature you might study in school is heavily influenced by the greatest story of hope ever told, the story of Jesus. That's because somewhere down deep, we all sense the need for a Savior, Still today, people are desperately searching for a savior. They look for a savior in sports figures. They look for a, uh, saviors in Hollywood stars or in politicians. Some might even look for a savior in a pastor in a larger life, larger-than-life spiritual leader, but ultimately there is only one savior and only one who can give us real and lasting hope. His name is Jesus. His story is called "The Gospel, the Good News." And it is the heart of the better way. Which, which is so carefully explained in the book of Hebrews. Let's get into our text. We have now arrived at chapter 6. Chapter 6, today we'll cover verses 9 through 19. So turning the corner from the difficult warning that we covered last week, the inspired author of Hebrews writes, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you And things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will be not sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." Now, before we start unpacking this passage, I need to make something very clear. This text is written to those who have already received Christ as their Savior by grace through faith, a decision to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Remember from last time I explained that the previous verses are parenthetical, both in terms of content and audience. Now the author has turned back to his primary audience, the true church, those whose hope is firmly placed in Christ the Messiah. That's why he says at the beginning, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So understanding that this passage assumes a saved audience, we can see that saved people are to live as people who have hope rather than as those who do not. Sounds simple and obvious, but is it really? I want you to ask yourself, what do I need to hear and understand from this text? Ask yourself, even though I know I'm saved in Christ, what do I still desperately need today? Let me answer that question with another question. When most people hear your rhetoric, your speech, when they read your posts on social media, or simply look at your face, do they see and hear a message of hope? I'm talking to solid believers right now, the beloved, as our text calls you, and I'm asking you to get real. Are you known more for your hope in Christ or your disappointment in other things? Is it more obvious that you have hope in Jesus or more obvious that you are feeling hopeless? Perhaps over political elections Uh Uh-oh. The relevancy gauge just went up, didn't it? Are you a person of hope? Is hope the first thing people see in you? Or are you more like Boromir? I'm going to get Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings in this message. What did Boromir say? He said, it is long. It's very dramatic. It is long since we had any hope. It is long since we had any hope. By the way, in Tolkien's Messiah story, hopelessness is the very thing that led Boromir to act like Judas, to really go out of character and betray his companions. See, both Boromir and Judas decided that desperate times required desperate measures, so they did something terrible that they wouldn't have normally done. But they both would have done better to have hope instead. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, fellow believer. Hear this. Hopelessness will always lead you astray. A lack of hope in your life will lead you to make bad decisions. Losing hope can lead to losing everything else. See that you do not lose hope. That's the message here. And let me tell you, I need this message as much as anyone Some days I lose hope for the world around me, especially, when it looks like our choice for president may come down again to, well, let's just not name names. But pretty much every time we have an election, I tend to lose hope. Sorry, that's just how I personally feel about it, and of course, I also realize how silly it is for any follower of Christ to lose hope over such a thing. As if our hope were found in who wins or loses any election at all. Really? No, really. Is that where we're going to find hope today, church family? In who wins elections? No. But let me bring this home even a little bit more, because obviously our tendency to lose hope is about more than elections. The fact is that many of us are feeling more and more hopeless about this country, which is where we live, which is something that matters to us. And, of course, it's going to matter to us because we live here. Does anybody else need to be honest today? Has anyone else been concerned that this country is falling apart? It's Veterans Day weekend. What if people who respect that and who care about that are mostly dying off? See what I'm saying? Okay. Look, if you really want to lose hope, just focus in on statistics about the last two generations and what they believe and what they think matters. Not all of them, of course. But in overwhelming majority, they have some very interesting ideas <laughs> about what is important. Let's face it, those of us with a biblical worldview are looking around, and our view of the world does not give us hope. And it's easy to feel like, like things are worse than ever. I hear that all the time, but that's our first mistake. What did the world surrounding the audience of the book of Hebrews look like? It looked like sin was rampant and evil was winning. Persecution was real in the church and was about to get much worse. For many of them, everything from defamation of character to physical suffering to martyrdom was at the door. The world was even less a hopeful place for them than it is for us. Based on this passage, it would seem many of them were feeling like too many of us, hopeless. They were walking around sad and dour, and disappointed, and frustrated, and angry, and irritated. And does any of this sound familiar? Christ came to give us a better way, beloved. But too many of us are not living by that way. We need to lift up our eyes. We need to refocus on the powerful hope that is ours in Christ. There is a choice we need to make, not about salvation, if that choice has already been made in your case, but about actually living with hope. This is the overarching message of our text today. I'll put it this way. For believers, hope is available, but not automatic. Now, in case you haven't noticed in this series, the author of Hebrews takes a lot of detours mostly to try to back up his point. He needed a good preaching class, I guess, somebody to tell him not to do that. I'm kidding, of course. And in truth, he wasn't writing sermons. But specifically, the author of Hebrews constantly refers to Old Testament Scripture passages or principles for support, which sometimes makes it hard to grasp the main point, especially considering our non-Jewish understanding. And so, I've needed to spend a ton of time on explanation in this series, more than I like to do. But that's just what has been required by these texts. Today though, I really don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. In our text we see all this stuff about oaths and even Melchizedek again, and it's easy to miss that the real heart and soul of this passage is found in just a few words. And so let's see what we have left, if I temporarily remove sort of the parenthetical comments, the clarifying information, and the parts where the author is backing up what he's saying. And let's just move all of that material to the footnotes for just a minute, and and let me read what we are left with from this message, from this passage. In other words, here's how this all boils down, in the author's own words. So that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Now, what if we were to sift this down even further into what is here for us to actually do? What are the action words here? Two words, take hold. All right, so that's the action of the verb, and what is the object? Take hold of what? We're strongly encouraged to take hold of the hope set before us. It's set before us, but we have to take hold of it. That's that's your take home today. That's your application. That's really, that's that's it. That's the whole sermon, but don't leave yet if you don't mind. In terms of what we're really to do with this, that's it. Adding back in some of the context, we can put it like this. You need to take hold of the hope that Jesus earned for you on the cross. And again, this is a message for believers, people who already are saved. So we are not talking about that initial first-time decision to trust in Christ, but we're talking about how you are to live as a person who has done that. And it sounds so simple, but are you really doing this? Again, what this means is that for believers, hope is available but not automatic. And oh my, is it not automatic? I think I've already established the fact that hope is not automatic in this world. Even believers do not default at hope, and this is obvious. If we look in the mirror, listen to what our brothers and sisters are saying in times like these. See, it's great that you and I have believed in Christ and that we know heaven is our eternal home, but we still need to choose hope like every day. I have a feeling many of you have not been taking hold of hope. I know for me this is a continual battle. Notice again in verse 9 that the audience is addressed as beloved. Just in case you weren't sure I was correct, that this portion of the text is written to save people, this word should settle the matter. And even in this word, beloved, there is incredible hope. We are not the accursed. We're not the accursed, those who we were forced to talk about last week. But again, we're not the condemned or the hopeless. Rather, we are the dearly loved children of God. By the way, when you read the word beloved in Scripture, the reference is mostly about the love of God, not the love of the inspired human author. There may be a little little of that, but the the word and the the intent is, it's a clear, uh, well, a clearer translation might be, one who is loved by God with a very special and exclusive kind of love. That's exactly what beloved means in Scripture, one who is dearly loved by God, like the apple of his eye. Listen, church family, you are the beloved of God. There is hope in that truth. Take hold of that hope. I say again that for the believer, hope is available, but it's not experienced automatically. As you know, it's even possible to live out your Christianity as if you did not have hope. That's right. You can be the church curmudgeon if you want. Anyone? Anybody want to be our resident church curmudgeon? I don't think we have that guy in this church yet. (laughs) Or you can be that old sourpuss church lady or that cranky old deacon's wife or whatever. We've all probably experienced these people. But I'm hoping for better things for you and for me. So let's talk about How we can do a better job of actually practicing the hope that is ours in Christ. First of all, we can see from our text that we must know the giver of hope. That's number one. Know the giver of hope. And again, I'm not talking about the initial step of faith that we call salvation. This is written to the beloved, to the believers. And so what I'm drawing from the text here is this, that a deeper knowledge of God leads to a deeper experience of hope. The more we know the giver of hope, the more hope we are given by Him. There's a reason that the inspired author begins his case for hope with the words, for God. From verse 10, for God is not unjust. Hope is born out of who God is. And so here we have one of God's character traits being presented as the foundational reason we should take hold of hope. To say that God is not unjust is to say, among other things, that God is consistent. That is actually the context here that God can be counted on that He's trustworthy, that His promises are true because He is true. God does not say one thing and then do another. He is not unjust. When God tells us that His justice has been satisfied in Christ on the cross, that means it is completely satisfied. Your debt is paid in full. Since God is not unjust, you'll not be retried for crimes that have already been punished. There's no double jeopardy with God. Why? Because God is not unjust. And the justice of God not only gives us hope in the assurance of our salvation, but on a deeper level, His justice gives us hope simply because, in God, justice exists. Why should there be justice at all? Why is this not exclusively a survival of the fittest, chaotic, and barbaric kind of world? Because of God. There is hope for this world only because of God, and first and foremost, because He is just. All His promises are true, and He has promised so much to His beloved. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but even this one is not left completely without hope, because God is just, and God is here. How deep is our hope in these aspects of God? Our hope is as deep as our knowledge of Him. The more deeply you know the giver of hope, the more hope you will be given. So how well well do you know him? Are you spending enough time in his word and in prayer? Are you regularly attending church and maybe a small group or a men's or women's group or whatever is available so that you will be coming to know God better and better? Enough to be reminded of his attributes, such as the one mentioned here, justice. When you know God better, you have a better hope. But his justice is only one example. There are so many other aspects of God's character that can bring us hope. For one more example, look at the rest of verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God does not forget your work or your love. When you come to know him better, you come to know that he does not forget. This is one of many places in Scripture where we are told that God keeps a record of the good things we do and the love we show in His name. It's true. Conversely, we're also told in other places that the record of our wrongs is nailed to the cross and no longer held against us, that He remembers our sin no more because all of it, past, present, and future, is punished already. Ah, but our work and our love, which is manifested in service to the saints, is never forgotten by God. See, there's a great hope in knowing God as the one who never forgets your work and your love. Who are the saints anyway? And look, I know the Roman Catholic Church has another category, but there's no debate about the fact that when you read about the saints in Scripture, it's just another way to say the beloved. The saints are the true church, those who are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. In the Bible, the saints are true believers in general, and it's just as simple as that. If you know Jesus, you are one of the saints. And this could not be more clear if we stick with Scripture alone for our answers. Back to the point, when you serve and love the saints, the church, the body of Christ, God remembers it. He remembers your work and your love forever. There's hope in knowing the God who remembers Jake, brother, God's gonna remember those fillets, that brisket that you got for me, okay? And not because I'm more of a saint than Dan. He's gonna remember the steaks you got for Dan too. We're all saints in Christ. You too, Daryl. Some of you feel I'm feeling left out now. That wasn't my intention there, but. If He's our Savior, then we're saints. And when we serve the saints, the church, He does not forget. There's hope in that. Again, these are just examples of the principle that there's hope in knowing God because the more you know God, the more you will understand and experience the reason for your hope. Our hope is well founded because He is just and because He remembers our love and good deeds, but it's also well founded because of so many other things, so many other wonderful things about God. See, the more you know Him, the more hope you can have. So, what do you need to do to have better hope? You need to press into knowing God better. Secondly, to gain a better hope, you'll need to walk the gauntlet of hope. Now, why would I describe the path of hope with a prickly word like gauntlet. Well, in this world, everywhere we turn, depravity pulls at our hope. So much of the news we hear, along with our own experiences, seek to rip the hope right out of our hearts. Sometimes hanging on to hope in this life can feel like fighting our way through a gauntlet. A gauntlet. What's a gauntlet? Well, it's kind of like a treacherous maze filled with traps where one misstep means all hope is lost. I do also think it's true that some people walk a more complicated and difficult gauntlet than others, you know? And we can learn from them. We had known this family for almost 15 years. Her husband served as my associate pastor at one point, and she was a good friend to my wife. But this young lady developed an eating disorder which stemmed from extreme anxiety. She could not eat at a restaurant of any kind. She could not eat anything prepared by a friend. The list of things she would eat grew smaller and smaller, as did she. Her emaciated frame added to her anxiety as she knew it had become obvious that she had a problem. She received much counseling. Counseling, She spent time at an expensive crisis center, which all but promised she would get better. Nothing worked. Every effort seemed to yield no long-term results. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. For years, she's a special person with an amazing heart. It was so sad to see her life wasting away. At one point, Christy and I actually wrote a song for this woman called "I Will Hope," and we tried to keep hope alive. But the truth is, I'm sad to say that at some point later, I had virtually lost hope for her. And then one day, a few years ago, something clicked. Something happened. I don't know how she would describe it, but... It, it almost seemed like a switch was flipped, and ever since then, she has been eating normally and is now back to her normal weight. She began to help others with similar conditions. The roller coaster of those 10 years finally stopped, and while her life is far from perfect, now there is hope. I don't presume to know why this story had a good ending or how it worked out so completely, um, but my point is that this woman walked through. A long and difficult gauntlet until she found God waiting at the end. We didn't think she was going to make it, but she did. I could share other stories. I could tell of people I know who have miraculously defeated addictions. I could talk about people who overcame various sexual perversions. But one commonality in just about all of those stories is that the road was very long and difficult. The road to hope is often a gauntlet, like a treacherous maze with death traps to avoid all along the way. My college roommate and best man at our wedding, lifelong friend, nearly lost his marriage a few years ago. They got married the same year we got married, 30, almost 32 years. But their um, relationship had declined um, for years until finally they were separated for many months, all hope seemed lost. He had behaved badly. She didn't love him anymore, she said. For months, she rejected him. They basically didn't even talk from everything he told me. I thought there was absolutely no chance they would ever get back together, but he never stopped holding out hope. Now, their marriage is stronger than ever, and they have a ministry to help bring healing to other hurting marriages." These stories don't present the full picture, though, because the happy ending comes too quickly and too easily in a story. Full resolution took years in both cases. My point is that if hope is to be found where it is needed most, there will almost always be a long and challenging gauntlet to walk through. Perseverance and hope go hand in hand. This is also clear in our text. Look back with me from verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. There's an end to it, you've got to get through something. So that you'll not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. We're going to draw three sub points from these verses, but first, notice the gauntlet described in the three phrases I have underlined. Show the same diligence until the end, through faith and perseverance or patience. It's not going to be easy or quick or simple. Diligence and endurance and patience are going to be required, but there is hope that God's promises will be kept at the end. I see here three necessary actions for developing a better hope through the gauntlet of life. First of all, diligently pursue the full assurance of hope takes a ton of diligence to find hope, particularly once it's been lost. We're not going to make it through the gauntlet of hope by being sluggish, as it says. How many believers have not been diligent enough to realize the full assurance of hope? How many of us are living sluggish Christian lives as a result? The Greek word translated here as realize is gnosko, basically means to know. But there's also a Hebrew idiom, which is likely intended by the author. He was painting a picture of the kind of knowledge that a man and wife have toward one another. This is an intimate knowledge. Adam knew his wife, and she gave birth to a son. This is the picture of Gnosko here. It's to press in, to intimately know, to realize something at an intensely personal level. So, are you personally infatuated with the hope of Christ? Is the assurance of your hope constantly on your mind? Are you intimately acquainted with it? Are you in pursuit of this hope as something you greatly desire? When people see your demeanor, your attitude, when they look at your face, do they see that you've realized the full assurance of hope? Or is your hope buried away under piles of rubble because of lack of diligence? How can you gain or regain a realization of the full assurance of hope. Well, you'll have to start by throwing off sluggishness and diligently pursuing it. This requires mental discipline. It requires a daily decision to pursue a hope-filled attitude. Again, I return to the overarching idea of this passage, hope is available but not automatic. So first, to make it through the gauntlet, we need to diligently pursue hope. Secondly, we need to imitate the faith of biblical heroes. Look back at the last part of verse 12 where the writer says, we should be imitators of those who through faith inherit the promises. Let's focus on faith for a minute because in the following verses, the author holds up the example of Abraham, the father of our faith. Many of you probably know that the so-called roll call of faith comes later in chapter 11 of Hebrews where we're given several more examples of those who previously inherited the promise of God through faith. And so obviously we'll talk more in detail about faith later in the series, but right now it's about how faith relates to hope and specifically how we can imitate the faith of biblical heroes in order to find hope. You might ask, what's the difference between faith and hope? I'll start by saying that biblically speaking, I think faith is a broader word that includes hope. We might also say that faith is believing in God's character and maybe hope is more about what God is going to do because of His character. This would partially explain why faith in God is required in order for hope to survive, and why, in imitating the faith of biblical heroes, we might find hope. So, you don't hope for the promises if you don't have faith in the promiser. See? And yes, I know that promiser is not a word, but every word in the English dictionary had a birthday. So anyway, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you know that it could not have always been easy for him to have faith in God, to say nothing of his hope and God's promises. At times, it would almost seem that his life was like a gauntlet designed to squelch hope because every circumstance screamed at Abraham and Sarah that God was flat out not keeping his promise. But what I'm saying is that their faith in the promiser helped them keep their hope in the promise. Similarly, hope is not usually easy for us. Looking around, it can seem like God does not care, that God is not involved, that God is not concerned, and frankly, that God is not doing anything. So what can we learn from biblical heroes like Abraham on this subject? Let me just put it this way. Sometimes it takes a lot of faith to have hope. Whether we're looking at natural disasters or school shootings or other acts of terror, we just don't understand. In our finite minds, we might even question God with philosophical catch-22s. Either God, either God uh, cares but was powerless to stop the killer, or He could have stopped the killer, but He doesn't care. You know, I mean, of course, those are not the only two options, but even the other options are frankly not all that satisfying to our small minds. Beyond this, we don't like what we see. We just don't like what we see happening in this world because we're not supposed to like it. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Because of sin, the earth is cursed. Groaning for the day, it will be released from pain and suffering. When Jesus returns and makes all things new. Sometimes this world seems almost like a gauntlet set up to crush hope. Could it all be a test? I think, in some ways, the answer is absolutely yes. And see, what I'm saying is that our biblical heroes passed the test. Will I pass the test? Will you? Maybe it isn't popular, but the truth is that your best hope in this life really is not in this life at all. If your primary hope is that no one you care about will ever suffer or die, then your hope is in vain. You need instead to imitate the faith of people like Abraham and the other heroes mentioned later in chapter 11 where we will discover that they all got exactly what they wanted before they died. No? No. We will discover that they all died and went to their graves even though they had faith. But see, even death did not mean their hope was in vain. Because why? Because they were looking for a different city. An eternal one designed and built by God. Scripture tells us these examples of our faith had hope because they were looking for a city not made with human hands. That's a phrase or an idiom that is repeated in the Bible, and it means they were looking to heaven for hope, not to the world. Their hope was bigger than tsunamis or tornadoes or hurricanes. It was bigger than some evil-hearted thug with a gun or a knife. Their hope transcended earthly circumstances. To experience a better hope for life, we need to imitate their faith in God, and we'll talk about that faith a lot more later in this series. Thirdly, as we walk through the gauntlet of hope in this life, we must imitate the patience of biblical heroes. Again, verse 12 says we're to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Not only did our biblical heroes have faith, but they had patience. In fact, hope and patience maintain an obvious partnership. Basically, you can't have one without the other. It is impossible to wait patiently if you have no hope that what you're waiting for will ever come to pass. And hope, by definition, involves waiting patiently for something to happen. See, it isn't hope anymore if it already happened. Look at verses three or 13 through 15 in our text. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. But we live in an impatient world, don't we? One could almost say the primary goal of humanity in recent decades has been to rule out the need for patience. Think about it. Did anybody watch any of the uh, election results shows on Tuesday night? Uh, Don't raise your hand. Okay, I did. I watched some of it. And the whole thing was designed around our inability to wait for a few hours to see what actually happened you know? I mean, the whole thing is just trying to you know, drill down into counties and districts and try to figure out, okay, are these people over here, so this is probably going to happen maybe, boom, 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 come out with all these theories of how, what's, how it's going to result. And regardless of what you think about all that, examples are abundant. That's just one example. Examples are abundant of the fact that patience is a lost virtue in our culture. And yet the better hope God wants for us requires just that, patience. I think if I ask, Is patience, who who is patience hard for? I I really feel like if we were honest, every single hand would go up, you know? And that's needed for for patience, for hope. We've got to have patience to find hope. One of the hardest passageways to find through the gauntlet of hope is patience. I remember when a friend of mine found himself in need of a helping hand. He and his wife had gone for a little motorcycle ride way out in the country, and his bike broke down far from civilization. Placing his hope in a good friend, he called and asked if I could possibly come pick them up in my truck. Now, you have to understand something about men like me. There's just something about us and our vehicles. One part of it is that if a friend's vehicle is broken down and we're there in our own vehicle somehow bail them out of their trouble, well, there's just a large amount of testosterone happening in that situation. Any guy would rather be the one coming through than the one waiting on the side of the road hoping for help. Add to that the involvement of a truck, and the Messiah complex factor increases exponentially for the one who is helping out, and you see, I have a truck. I come onto the scene packing a certain set of abilities that only comes with owning a truck. I had the ability to place my friend's motorcycle in the truck bed and bring it home. Every real man at least wishes he had a truck. (laughs) A man without a truck is like Batman without his utility belt. So meanwhile, my friend and his wife had to wait very patiently, hoping I would arrive with help as promised. It took me quite a while to get there with them waiting on the side of the road. They had to have patience. Finally, here I came, proud truck owner, coming to save the day for these two unfortunate souls. I pulled up, literally sang out the window, here I come to save the day. Got out, loaded up the motorcycle. As we attempted to open the doors to get in and drive triumphantly away, I realized that I had locked my keys inside the cab. (laughs) Suddenly, we all found ourselves in the same position, in need of hope and patience. All right, never fear. fear. I have a cell phone, which of course is locked in the truck. (laughs) Oh, it's okay. My friend has his cell phone, so I borrow his phone to call home. Why? Because mine was locked in the truck. By who? Me. Needless to say, by now the testosterone has subsided completely as I'm thinking that the real Savior will wind up being my sweet little wife. (laughs) So I call her and she says she'll be on her way. Time begins to pass. In fact, Time drags on. Extreme amounts of patience are required. I mean, it's been over an hour, and it should have taken only maybe 20 minutes to get there. We try calling her on her cell phone, see what's taking so long, but we can't get through. We can't get through. Time drags on some more. We try calling again, and we get just enough signal to hear three words, A, flat tire. (laughs) True story. So next, I call the real hero in most of my stories, my dad. He and my mom drive in his truck to where Christy is with her car on the side of the road. They grab my extra keys from her. Dad stays there to help her with a flat tire while my mom, yes, my five-foot-tall mother, drives up to where my friend, his wife, and I are to finally save the day. Hope always requires diligence, faith, and patience. Sometimes hanging on to hope through the twists and turns of this life really is like walking through a gauntlet. Can you hang on even when it isn't funny? Can you keep hanging on even when it's grueling? Please do. Eventually your patience will be rewarded with hope. So, in order to have this better hope, first, we need to know the giver. Secondly, we need to walk the gauntlet through diligence, faith, and patience. And then lastly, we must embrace the guarantee of hope. And this brings up an interesting question. What exactly are we guaranteed? Our text mentions at least three things. First of all, we're guaranteed an eternal refuge. From verse 17, it says, In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It had kind of been holding our eternal refuge or heaven in our minds all day as the big reason for all of our hopes. So the principle that I want to highlight today is this. When God's purpose is coupled with His promise, we have an eternal guarantee. You might want to write that down. You could write it like this. God's purpose plus God's promise equals an eternal guarantee. Verse 17 says, God desired to make the unchangeableness Of that which we hope for, obvious. Do you see that there? God wanted to make it obvious that we should have hope. That's why interposed or coupled his promise, his oath, with his purpose. This actually goes back to what we discussed last week in the fact that our salvation is eternal. God is saying that that's exactly what he wanted to convince us of. of. The unchangeability of our promised refuge. It's all guaranteed by God himself, you see. And who does God want to convince of this guarantee. when you look at verse 17 and see who God wanted to show this to. He wanted to show that His purpose and promise is unchangeable. To whom? To the heirs of the promise. And who might that be? That would be us. We are the heirs, the ones who are inheriting what God and His people have handed down through the ages. You and I, the beloved, are the heirs of the purpose and promise of God. See, the purposes and the promise of God are both unchangeable. His purposes don't change. His promises doesn't cha- promise doesn't change. They're both as unchangeable as He is. That's what the Word of God says right here. And so when God interposes His promise with His purpose, we can be doubly assured of our hope. Add to this tandem truth the fact that it is impossible for God to lie, and our hope in Him is triple guaranteed beyond any doubt. And what exactly are we hoping for? Again, if we look closely at verse 18, along with the overarching message of the entire book of Hebrews, we can see that what we are hoping for can be summed up as an eternal refuge. An eternal refuge. Doesn't that sound good? Well, it should sound good. The gauntlet of this life is long, or it feels long, but the refuge is eternal. Life is hard, but Jesus saves forever. Forever. This eternal refuge of which the author speaks is mostly the hope of heaven, of course. But it's actually more than that because there is a refuge in God that's ours throughout this life on earth as well. This is an eternal refuge, you see. And as we discussed last week, eternity means it begins now and lasts forever. This is both the purpose and the promise of God to us. Refuge forever through Christ. God made this eternal refuge guaranteed specifically so that we could have the full assurance of hope. Our reservation in God's refuge is doubly guaranteed by the purpose and promise of God. Secondly, we guaranteed an anchor for our souls, an anchor for our souls. Verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. How many of you could use an anchor this morning? Does anybody feel tossed around by the waves of this life or pulled this way or that by the voices and messages of this world. Got stuff? You need more stuff. Got a wife? You need a hotter one. Got a husband? Why? (laughs) I mean the messages. The messages of this world, they pull us all over the place sometimes. Don't they? Maybe you're better than me. I don't know. So what of this idea of our soul being the thing that needs an anchor? The soul is our core being. The soul is our mind, our will, our emotions, our consciousness, our identity. The writer of Hebrews is saying that hope is an anchor for who we are on the inside. God's promised anchor is both sure and steadfast, and this is exactly what some of you maybe don't have that you need today, an anchor for your soul. Without hope, there is no anchor, only turmoil. But with hope, regardless of what storms you may be dealing with on the inside or the outside, an inner fortitude from God will allow you to hold fast. As a believer in Christ, you're called to embrace this eternal guarantee, to embrace hope in God's purpose and promise. And in doing so, you'll find an anchor for your soul. Thirdly, we're eternally guaranteed an open door to God. An open door to God. Look back at the second half of verse 19, verse 20. A hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's like in the song Cornerstone, where we sing, My anchor holds within the veil. Remember that line? We it's this dramatic moment in the song. We sing it out loud. My anchor holds within the veil. Remember that? But I wonder how many of us ever knew what it meant. We should ask these questions. And here's the answer. Right here in verse 19, an anchor of hope within the veil. The veil The veil is a reference to the curtain surrounding the Holy of Holies. That most holy place inside the tabernacle and later the temple. The Bible says this place in some limited way housed the very presence of God. This was the place where people like you and me could not go before Christ. Only the high priest could enter there and only once per year. But as we have discussed in this series, the Bible also says that when Jesus died, the veil surrounding this Holy of Holies split. It was torn in two from top to bottom. God was making it clear that men and women can now have complete access to the presence of God in Christ. The doorway to God is wide open. In fact, an anchor for us is available right there in that holy place, something that will keep us moored there, so close to God. What is this anchor? It is our hope. How much hope is there in the presence of God? And get this, the point of this text is not that He is in your presence, but that you are in His. See, through the eternal priesthood of Christ, which is of the order of Melchizedek, meaning it's eternal, it's an eternal priesthood, so it lasts forever, as we've discussed. But again, the point is that through Christ, you have been brought into the most holy place where God is. Get this, in some profound way, you are even now right there where God is. Our citizenship is in heaven. Do you need hope today? Understand that in Christ, you have been brought through the door, through the veil, into the very presence of God. Is there any more hope-filled place that you could ever be? No. Find hope in the presence of God today. I've said repeatedly today that for believers, a better hope is available but not automatic. Far too many of the beloved are walking around as if there were no hope. It's almost as if even some believers are convinced that climate change or a deadly virus or aliens are going to bring an end to the earth. Others are all wrapped up in the bad economy. Or maybe you're sick of our massive and sometimes oppressive government. But whatever it is, even believers, maybe even especially believers, with their minds all wrapped up in these topics, seem hopeless still other believers seem to think everything is hopeless because of unbelievers. Wow, that's even worse. As if they controlled our destiny or as if they were our enemy. They do not and they are not. What I am saying to all of you is this. Our ultimate hope is not in humanistic efforts to save the planet or in reversing the industrial revolution or in a new revolution toward more effective government. Neither is our hope ultimately found in science. More to the point for some of you, our hope is not found in unbelievers becoming believers or in people who have ideas that we think are wrong changing their minds. Our hope is not in convincing others or in becoming the majority opinion. And that's a good thing because let me just explain something to you. That is never going to happen again, if indeed it ever happened before. I don't believe a majority of believers on earth is what we see happening in the prophecies of Scripture. No, I'm afraid we will wind up even more a remnant before the end. So, listen, our hope is not in becoming a majority or thereby winning elections. No, friends, our hope is a better hope than what we could find in any of those things, so much better This hope is available to believers, but it's not automatic. So how can you have this different and better kind of hope? Well, first you need to know the giver of hope better. You need to first know Him through salvation, of course, but even after that you need to get to know Him better. Secondly, you need to walk out the gauntlet of this life by diligently pursuing hope, especially through the hard times, by imitating the faith and patience of biblical heroes enduring to the end as they did. Finally, to have hope, you need to fully embrace God's guarantee. Once more, know that by faith in Christ, you're guaranteed an eternal refuge. It's guaranteed. If you really believe that, it's kind of Really, I mean, if you're hanging on tight to that and you understand that, a lot of things kind of tend to fade in terms of significance. This life is a passing vapor. Hope in these eternal realities can act as an anchor for your soul. So, why don't you say goodbye to the blues today? Say goodbye to so much negativity and sadness. Say goodbye to hopelessness and exchange your hope in empty things. That will never work right for the better hope God has as an anchor for your soul seek all of your hope in him even now would you pray with me Lord we come with empty hands and open hearts we don't know what we're doing half the time <laughs> so thank you for the guidance of your word that lights our path and I pray that today, even in this moment, it's lighting the path for many of our people, as it has for me this week, back to where we can find hope and helping us realize where we'll never find it. Turn our hearts to Jesus as the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and grace, as the old hymn says. Lord, that your word would bear fruit this week, that we would remember what we've learned today, that we would make choices, that we would be intentional about taking hold of hope, that we would even catch ourselves at some point in conversation when we realize and we would maybe even realize that even as a believer, that we're talking to people and we sound like we're just hopeless and we might stop and mid-sentence even and turn and turn to you because we're not being light and salt and um, our witness is weak when it's not clear that we have hope and it's so sad and it's such a waste knowing that we have an anchor in the holy of holies what, what more could we possibly need to have hope God change, us, change our hearts change our change our speech from out of the heart, the mouth speaks, as James says. Change our hearts. We surrender to you today. Lay it all down. To put you first. To find our hope in you. And for Lord, for anyone that uh, is here today that doesn't uh, doesn't know you and has just never really had that initial moment that I've mentioned of conversion of being born again as your word talks about this moment where we say uh, i i turn i'm turning away from my my life to this point um i'm turning i'm repenting is the biblical word i'm turning away from uh, who i've been and, and where i've sought my hope and and kind of the emptiness that's there and i'm turning from that and i'm turning to jesus christ to be my savior my messiah uh, that you would save me today that somebody just tell him, just say, I, I need, I turned from all that before and I'm turning to Jesus. I need him to, I need you. Come into my heart. I want to, get, I want to serve you. I want my life to be about serving you and, and knowing that in the end I have eternity with you. I just, just change my whole life, God. I just surrender. Just, just save me today. It's not exact words. It's a, it's a moment of faith. It's a moment of repentance and faith and believing that He's there and that He's real and that He wants to save you and just saying yes, responding. Maybe today's the day for somebody. Father, thank You for the work that You do in our lives. Your Word does the work. Your Word is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and it cuts deep down into the marrow, down into our souls. We trust you to do the work. Surrender it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.